Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to my brother, first of all, for inviting me. Um, and also to the Riverdale community, which I have gotten to know, I think, um, much better this year through Lamdenu. I've met so many wonderful people and continue to meet wonderful people from this community. So thank you so much for having me, and I'm excited to learn together with you. Um, can you see me? I feel like I should have worn heels. <laughs> okay, but an extra two inches would have helped. Um, okay, now... Um, the topic I want to talk about today is, um, you can see from the title, what the prophet of exile can teach us about living in Israel. And the truth is, you know, on the heels of Yom Ha'atzmaut, I'd really like to explore some of the depth about what it means to live in Israel, what it means um, to, to have a land in also a very physical way. Um, but in a way, it's kind of counterintuitive to use Yirmiyahu, the prophet of the exile, the prophet who lived through the Horban of the, um, the first temple, as someone to learn from about living in Israel. Um, Yirmiyahu lives through one of the most difficult times in Jewish history. Okay? His, his, his prophecy spanned for about 40 years before the destruction of the first temple. Um, his exact dates were 627 BCE to about 586 BCE. Um, first date is a little bit debatable by the scholars by a year or two, but I give you the general idea. Um, and ultimately, he continues to... We have recorded prophecy for about a short amount of time after the destruction, and then ultimately he goes down with the Jewish people to Egypt when they leave Israel for the first time. But since they came there as a collective group, they collectively leave. Um, now, his prophecies were directed to the northern kingdom of Israel. I'm sorry, to the southern kingdom of Israel. There were two, just to give you a little bit of context, there were two after, really only a generation after King Solomon, Shlomo, the kingdom split. Um, his, and we had the southern, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom who operated as two very different entities. Um, now, the northern kingdom was exiled by Assyria about 150 years before the destruction of the first temple. Um, so by the time Yirmiyahu was there, he's really only speaking to a remnant. The ten tribes, right, what we're used to as the exile of the ten tribes, have already been exiled, and he's speaking to the southern kingdom, primarily based in Jerusalem, and he's speaking to... Um, a very, he's really speaking to a small remnant that's left. Okay? Now, just to add, so I've already convinced you that Yermio is really not a good source to learn about living in Israel because he's really the one who, I don't want to use the words, led them out of Israel, but accompanied the people out of Israel for the first time that we collectively left Israel. Um, not only that, just to make my case stronger, um, against what I'm about to say, um, he actually counseled towards the end of his prophecy, the dominant theme um, was that he began to counsel the people to give in to Babylonia and not to fight back, that fighting back was the wrong approach. And at this time, what they need to do is really subjugate themselves and give in to Babylonia. Now, by the way, this was such a dominant theme and so troublesome that after we returned back to Medina Israel in 1948 and, in the, in 19, and then the second victory in 1967, um, it was so this was such a controversial theme in the book of Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, that it was kind of taken out of the government Tanakh programs. Um, there's been a resurgence now, especially with Rabbeinu Lau's book, which is very popular in Israel. But um, it was, if you look at the, the Misrata Chinuch curriculum, really tried to downplay a lot of the prophecies of Yirmiyahu because it was almost counter to what we were doing you know, in the rebuilding. So what is there to learn from Yirmiyahu about living in the land of Israel? So actually, there's a lot. 
Um, but in order to really parse out his message, we're going to have to go on a bit of a journey, okay? including a few stories from Yirmiyahu's life, as well as stories from an earlier time period from the book of Melachim, the book of Kings, which is also, according to the Gemara, authored by Yirmiyahu. Okay, so we're going to go on this journey together, and we'll try to pull everything together at our conclusion. Okay, so let's begin with a story that appears in Yirmiyahu Perak Lamed Hay. And this is actually source two. It's Yirmiyahu 35. Um, it's source two in your source booklet. Um, okay, I'm going to use my Tanakh, but um, it's right here. Um, and it's written, I have it in Hebrew and in English, so I'll translate, but feel free to follow along in whatever is comfortable for you. Okay. Um, now, just a little context before we start reading this first story. It's a little bit of a strange story, um, but you, you have to take it into the context of some of the things that Yirmiyahu did as a prophet. And one of the things that he did was he did a lot of symbolic actions. He would do an action that would have meaning in order to encourage the people to repent, to come back, to each time he had a little bit of a different goal. Um, so this story is told during the time of, I will not test you on the names of all these kings because we're going to be throwing out names of different kings. Um, but this story was told during the times of King Jehoiakim, who was actually a very evil king who followed a righteous king, his father, Yoshiahu, okay, who was known for his religious reforms. Okay, so during the time of Yoshiahu, there were many religious reforms, um, but they basically fell apart once his son Jehoiakim took the leadership. Um, now, this is an important context to know for this, this chapter that we're going to look at because Yirmiyahu's goal here is to rebuke the people for leaving God. Okay, the people during the time of Yoshiah had committed themselves to God, and now they were pulling away. They weren't following through on the commitment, the promises, the tshuva, the repentance that they had taken on. Um, so particularly in this parak, he's focusing on their disloyalty to God. Okay, but the way he does it, if he just got up there and said, you are disloyal, which he also does, but it doesn't always work as well as sometimes if he did something that kind of got them or pulled them in or did something strange or interesting, it captured the people's interest, and then they would follow along with him a little bit more. Okay, so that's our context for the story. Okay, take a look at Yirmiyahu Paraklamin Hay. Okay. Hadavar Asherayah El Yirmiyahu Me'et Hashem Bimei Yehoyakim Ben Yoshiyahu Melch Yudah Okay, so this is, that was the context I just gave you. This is the word to Jeremiah from God in the days of Yehoiakim, who was the son of King Josiah, Yoshiahu. Haloch el beit harechavim, vidibarta otam, vehaviotem beit Hashem, elachat halishachot, vishkita otam yayin. Okay, so go to the house of the Rechavites. Okay, so it's a certain family. We're going to have to explore who they were. Speak to them, bring them to the house of God to one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. Okay, now already this is a little bit startling because wine and the temple don't go well together. It's never a good combination. Um, but there's even more that's going to have to be pulled out here. It's not just about that. Okay, I'm going to skip verses 3 and 4 just because we're, Yitzhi told me, Rabbi Ganak told me I have to finish by 9.30, right? So, okay, staying at 9.45? 9.25. Oh, 9.25. Okay, my time just got shorter. Ah, okay, fine. Okay, we're going to go to verse... Uh, Verse 5. Okay, so Yirmiyahu goes, and he sets bowls of wine and cups, and he said to them, drink wine. And they reply, we won't drink wine. Okay, now here's the surprising answer. Because there was a patriarch of this family, his name was Yonadav, 
and he, he, we still consider him like our father, and he told us that we should never drink wine. So these people basically don't drink any wine ever. Okay, not only that, more startling, ubayit lo tivnu. Okay, he also told us don't build houses. Vizera lo tizra'u, and don't plant seeds. Vikerem lo tita'u, and don't plant vineyards. Velo yelachem. Okay, you should live in tents in order that you should live for many days on the face of the earth that you're living on. Okay, so essentially, their command is almost to live like the Bedouin tribes. Like that's how I kind of imagine it. Right? Like they live in tents, they travel, they wander. They're probably shepherds because how else are you going to make your, you know, your income if not from agriculture? It has to be through something else. So livestock. Um, and they don't settle. There's no ownership, essentially, of the land. Okay, now they respond, okay, And we've listened to him for 250 years. We haven't drank wine. We, don't, we haven't built houses. We haven't planted nothing. Okay, we live like nomads, essentially. We live in tents. We do everything our father commanded us. And really the only reason why we're even here in Jerusalem now is because of the presence of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, so for safety reasons. Okay, now, Yermiah then turns to the people, and now he has to give them the message of this strange symbolic action. Okay, Shouldn't you take Musar from this? And I translate Musar. Musar, right? Musar, Musar. Take a message from this. For 250 years, they listened to their father who told them not to drink wine simply because their father commanded them not to. Okay, this is speaking from the word of God. And I, God, have spoken to you. Yet I, God, you don't listen to. So here's this family. They listen to their patriarch to do these bizarre actions for many years. Well, you don't listen to me, God. Okay, and he, he continues... Um, and I told you so many times to improve your ways, not to follow false gods. And then you will live on this land. And you didn't listen. However, the sons of Yonadab ben Rechav, they kept their father's commandment, Asher Tivam. And this nation hasn't listened to me. Okay, now, he continues, by the way, definitely you should you know, finish up all these sources on your own, but he continues to say, therefore, you will be destroyed. And, interest, and the house of Yonadab will not. And actually, we have evidence from other sources that, in fact, when the temple and Jerusalem were destroyed, that this family was not destroyed. So it seems that Yermiah's words actually played out. Okay, so this, this story raises, I think, a lot of questions. Okay, so here's three, the three main ones that came to me. 
Like, first of all, the obvious. Who was this guy, Yonadav ben Rechav? Who is he? Why, we, we, you know, what's the context here? Okay, secondly, why did he impose all of these strange restrictions on his descendants? Okay, now thirdly, and this one will take us back to the context of Yirmiyahu, did Yirmiyahu actually agree with these restrictions? Okay, now, certainly Yirmiyahu's focus here is on the loyalty, right? He's comparing, look at this family that for 250 years has followed their patriarch, while, the Jew, you know, while you, the Jewish people, have not followed the word of God, but usually when you hold someone up to that degree, is he perhaps even holding up this family as a role model, saying that, well, there's something laudable about these restrictions and the way of life that these people have taken on? Okay, so these are, our, these are kind of our framing questions, um, and we're going to use these a little bit to guide our study. Okay, so let, let's start with the first question. Who was Yonadab ben Michav? Okay, now luckily, when Yermiah wrote the book of Malachim, he put the story of Yonadab in there for us to help. And that's the key, really, to unlocking this. Now, the story spans over many years, so I'm going to give you over many prakim also. So I'm going to give you the background. I'm going to say a lot of it that's really right there in Malachim. Um, but we'll look at a few places inside. But let me uh, some of it I'll just tell you outside, and I encourage you again to go through it on your own. Okay. Yonadab ben Rechav is mentioned in the book of Malachim as someone who lived about 250 years earlier, that part I gave away to you, um, and he was part of the northern kingdom during the kingship of the house of Ahav. Okay, now, who was Ahav? Okay, so in order to understand who Ahav was and the role that Yonadab played, we have to understand a little bit about Ahav. Who was the king Ahav of the northern kingdom? Okay, so pretty much Ahav was the worst king of Israel ever. That, that pretty much summarizes it. Uh, but I'll read you, this is not on your source sheet, but let me just read you the summary that Malachim gives in chapter 16. Okay. We're just correlating him with the Judean kings. Okay, he ruled the northern kingdom for 22 years. He did evil in the eyes of God. From anyone who lived before him. Now, just let me say that evil happened before that also. <laughs> so we're not comparing him to a slew of righteous kings, and they know he was the most evil. There were many evil kings before him. He was the worst. Okay, I like how the, how, how the Navi says this here. It was not enough for him to just follow the sins of the earlier evil northern king, Yeravam ben Navat. He did worse. He had to go far, further. He married a non-Jewish princess, Izevel, and and he continued. They, they, served, they, um, they served Baal. They served other gods. He was really the worst. A Jewish king, king of the northern kingdom, who married this non-Jewish woman who really brought every type of corruption into the, into the world, um, into the Jewish kingship. Now, Okay, let's, the most famous story um, of, um, of Ahab's kingship is the story of Kerem Navo, the story of um, the vineyard. So I want to take a look at this for a minute. Okay, we're, we're about 250 years before right, where, uh, where we started from Yirmiyahu, but we have to understand what Ahab's kingship was like, what this evil northern king, king was like. So we're going to take a look in the source book. This is, let's see, I'm skipping around a little bit. 
So we're going to look in source 7 now. Okay? And this is the story of the evil that happens at the hands of King Ahab. Okay, so here we go. Let me find it. Okay. Okay, so this is, this is really going to capture for us what was happening at this time, what the tone was, what the morals and the ethics were like. Okay, it's um, Kings chapter 21. So there was a man, and his name was Navot, and he had a vineyard, and it was next to the house of Achav, the king of Shomron. So what happened? Achav spoke to Navot, Lemur, Okay, give me your vineyard because it's right next to my palace and I would love to make it into this sort of beautiful garden because what I have, you know, in parentheses, what I have is not enough. I want a little more. I want to extend my grounds. But I'll give you, Tachtav, Kerem told me, Menu. Okay, and I'll give you a better vineyard. Don't worry. But I want this piece of land because it's next to my house. You know, if the house next door for you is for sale, you got to buy it. Im tov beinecha, etznelecha kesef mechirzer. Or I'll give you money for it. Navot turns to Achav and he says, okay, God forbid I should give you the portion that God allotted me in the land of Israel. Okay. Achav returns to his house. Okay, he comes home, he's upset, he's disappointed about what happened that Navot said he wouldn't give his... God-given portion of land. He lay down, he went into his bed. He turned away his face. He wouldn't eat anything. He really sounds almost like a child, you know, who's like angry and comes home and won't eat, goes right to bed. So then his wife comes to him. Why aren't you eating dinner? Right? Why aren't you eating? I could say, why aren't you eating the dinner I prepared for you? But obviously she didn't prepare it. But why aren't you eating the dinner that was prepared for you? And he spoke to her. And he tells her, he recounts to her the story, the conversation that he had with Navot, and how he refused to give him his vineyard. But Tomar love Izevel Ishto. Ata atata sembelucha al Israel. Okay? You are going to show yourself now to be the king. Okay? And what, this, what she means by king, you're going to assert your power. Okay? The king should have what the king wants. Kumacholachem vitavli becha. You should eat, feel good. Ani etin lachat kerem navodha Israeli. I leave this in my hands. I'm going to take care of this for you. She, she herself, she writes the books in his name. She stamps it with his stamp. He sent it to the elders and the nobles of the land that lived in the same town as Navot. We're going to make a, we'll call a, fa- a fast and we'll put Navot in front of the people. And what we'll do is against him, we'll say that he cursed God and the king, and then we'll agree that his punishment should be that he'll be stoned. Okay? So she basically creates a sham trial where 
he's accused, she, and she gets the benebliyal, the people who agree to this, accuses Navot of doing something that will cause him to be deserving of death. And the result will be, of course, that Navot will be stoned, and Ahav, obviously, will be able to seize the field. Okay, this is exactly what happens. I'm going to skip the part where this, where this happens. Um, skip down to verse 15, Tetvav. Once Izevel hears that Navot was stoned and he died, she says to Ahab, Go and take possession of the vineyard of Navot HaYisraeli. He refused to give it to you for money. Navot is not alive anymore. He died. Go take his field. Now, by the way, just note that the word she uses, Kum Rish, go, it almost sounds like a biblical word, like Yerusha, something that you inherit, like a godly. It's used a lot of times for things that are inherited in like a very um, sort of godly way. But here she's telling him, you go take it. Once Ahav, he was out of it. But once he heard that he died, then he went down to inherit it. God speaks to Eliyahu, who's the prophet at that time. Go speak to Ahav. He went to the vineyard of Navot to take possession of it. And speak to him and say, Would you murder and then take possession? Just like God prophesies that in the very place where the dogs lapped up Navot's blood, the dogs will lap up your blood as well. And he goes on to prophesy as well the downfall here of um, Ahav and ultimately Beit Ahav. So this is kind of the paradigmatic sin of Ahav because aside from all the idolatry um, that he brought in to Israel into the the house of God, but the corruption, the moral corruption, is really what stands out. The the taking his power of the king to just seize whatever property he wanted, and here actually, it's um here he's um, compared to Navot. Okay, Navot on the other hand is presented almost as just a very principled and righteous person. Because Navot's argument is the land is God-given. And that was the way it was. The land is God-given. It's not like here that you could just, you know, the way we have now that you want to buy this piece of land, you want to buy this piece of land, all on your hands. Really, God decided who got each portion of land in Israel. And it's not really mine to give you. You as the king may want it, but it's not for me to give to you. Okay, I'll just show you, if you look at the two sources that follow this, after source 7, I think it's source 8 and 9, um, take a look first at source 9, and then we'll go back to source 8. Okay, source 9 says, Lotisov um, Nachala, this is from Bamidbar, okay, where the land is apportioned, and God decides that every, God says how every tribe will get a portion of land. It was done by a lottery. Um, and 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 the commandment is loti sov nachala livnei Israel mi mate el mate ki ish benachalat mate avotav yidbaku benei Israel that every no inheritance should move from tribe to tribe, everyone should hold on to the inheritance that was given to them. So if a certain 
tribe received a certain piece of land, they didn't own it in the sense of that they could trade it if they preferred a different piece of land. Their receiving it was a God-given gift. Okay, and another source earlier in Vayikra, right, this is related to Chafhei, the laws of Shemitah and Yovel. Um, the law of Yovel is, in, in source 8, Vaha'aretz lo timkor litzmitut. Okay, the land can never be sold forever. Okay, that means that if somebody sells land to somebody that it didn't, that is not, it wasn't given to them, it wasn't part of their tribe or it wasn't part of that family, um, it doesn't go on forever. That land is always returned by Yovel. Because the land doesn't belong to the people, it belongs to God. Okay, in a sense, we're really like, we're living on God's land. We're only in Israel, we're renting the land from God. Okay, now this is the piece that was, the whole Eretz Achuzat Chem, Aretz. Okay, now what this is saying here is that there's an additional law, okay, and this is actually relates to the holiday of Shavuos, that if lands, let's say somebody was very, in a family was very poor, right, and then they couldn't hold on to their land anymore, they need to sell it in order to get money to live, then someone in that family is supposed to re- buy back that land so that it could stay in that family. Because okay? staying in that family is not just random, it's God-given. Okay? And that's the story, that's how this relates to Shavuot, that halacha of this mitzvah called ge'ulah, redemption of the land. It's not just like buying, it's not just physical, it's spiritual also, is what Boaz also did for Ruth. He bought back the land of Elimelech that he had lost and redeemed it for the family. He also married Ruth. That was all connected to it. And that was actually what Ploni Almoni, that unnamed, you know, guy who doesn't even get his name to get in there, he didn't step up to that responsibility. So connected to this is this mitzvah of Geulah. So Ahav, in, so the core principles here is that the land belongs to Hashem. Hashem decides who gets the land. And the land of Israel is always perceived as a divine gift. Okay, now, Ahav, in contrast, okay, he's the king, he's the leader, right? The king is meant to be a servant of God and a servant of the people, right? That's why he carried around that Torah with him at all times, um, that he could um, remember that like, his goal is really just to actualize the words of God. But he, instead of using his position to bring the people closer to God, he used his position for material gain. Okay? Simply for his own material desires, he simply just wanted bigger gardens. Like he just, I'm sure his palace wasn't too small to begin with. <laughs> We're not talking about, but he wanted more gardens. So the law, the, the God-given piece of it was irrelevant in the, in the strength of his own material desires. Okay, now this evil of Ahav continued through the reign of his sons into the next generation, okay? Until Elisha, the next prophet, okay, following Eliyahu, anoints, you don't have to remember these names, but he anoints someone named Yehu ben Nimshi as the new king of Israel, and he gives him the mandate of wiping out the house of Ahav, okay? And this is a topic for another time, but Yehu ben Nimshi, wow, he takes that on. I mean, he zealously kills out every single remnant and in really you have to read through the stories it's like hard actually to read it like he cuts off their heads puts it on platters like it's really a topic for another class which is that you know sometimes you get a mitzvah to do something and like how do you do it like do you go too far he's not a clear cut character at all because on the one hand he's fulfilling the word of God but on the other hand it's like a bloodbath so okay, but in any case who's Yonadab ben Rechav and how does he come into this okay so now 
Take a look. I told you we're going to be going all over the place. Um, take a look at um, source three. Back at source three. This is from Milachim. Okay, now, Yehu ben Nimshi um, is on his way to kill out the house of Akkad. He's actually in the middle of, of this murderous, of this just like huge mission. Vayelech um, Misham. So he goes from there. Vayimtza at Yonadab ben Rechav likrato vayivarchehu. Okay, and he sees Yonadab, the son of Rechav, coming to meet him, and he saluted him. And he basically says, Are you with me in my quest to wipe out the house of Achav? He says, Yes, I'm with you. Give me your hand. He gives him his hand. And Yehu brings Yonadab ben Rechav, the patriarch of this family that we've been talking about, into his chariot. Come along with me. And see my zealotry, my zealousness for God. And he brings him with him in his chariot. They come to Shomrom. They wipe out those that remain to Achab in Shomrom. Until they finish, uh, they wipe them out the way that God spoke to Eliyahu. Okay, so what we know about Yonadab ben Rechav was that he was involved in wiping out the house of Ahab. Okay, the corrupt and evil house of Ahab, this was part of his mission. So now we have more of an understanding of what the experiences of Yonadab ben Rechav was. But how can this help us understand the restrictions that he then imposed on his children? Right, remember, no, no wine, no houses, not rooting themselves, wandering, living in tents. What in his life caused him to then turn to his children afterwards and give him the give them these ideas because really what happens is, is that in everyone's life they want to leave their children with what they think are the best ways to live their lives now Yonadab ben Rechab lived a very colorful life he saw a very corrupt king and he was part of wiping out that house so afterwards before he dies he wants to set his kids on the right path his descendants not just his the first generation but his descendants and he turns to them with these restrictions Okay, and, and, and really, permit the restriction of not rooting themselves and not building on the land. What motivated him here? Now, there's a lot of different possibilities. Let's stop for a second. Can I turn this to you for a second? Is this, uh, is that done? Okay, so let me just stop for a second because I think this is really our criti- one of our critical questions here. Um, I think I'm still okay with the time. So, um, any, any thoughts about this? What might have motivated um, Yonadav post what happened to him to turn to his sons and, and, and give them these restrictions? When you see materialism as very core, I mean, this person was an child who then raised other petulant children who had an air of entitlement that went viral. Um, I think he, in turn, is saying not to be materialistic and to sort of remove yourself from ownership of things because that's what evidently led to their downfall was that they just wanted so much stuff. Right, that desire for the materialism. If you're a wandering person, there's only so much stuff you can carry. Right. There's only so much stuff you can own. And, And you also aren't always looking at your neighbor's fence saying, oh, look, they put in a new pool. Oh, look, you know, I have this, and I want it. I'm like, oh, 
So I think that he was creating an environment where they were also depending on each other. Mm. So he created a mobile community. Okay, so let's develop. I'm so because I couldn't have said it any better myself. I was so let's develop that idea that you just expressed um, because I think the roots of this are very deep. Now, if you're interested, by the way, in this, I just want to give sources four and five explore this from a different angle. But we're going to follow along with the path that we just started on, which is source six. I'm going to show you a source from Rav Hirsch. Um, now, this is from Rav Hirsch's commentary, actually, on the Book of Genesis. He's answering a different question. He's answering the question of why was Cain's korban rejected while Hevel's was accepted. Right? And remember that Cain was the Oved Adama, he was the farmer, while Hevel was the shepherd. Um, so in answering that, he though develops this idea about what is um, sort of land and how can land kind of be a corrupting force. Okay, so take a look. This is the English source on, on source six. This is what the verse says. Agriculture calls primarily for the expenditure of all one's bodily strength and energies. He becomes totally absorbed in his profession of gaining scanty substance for his bodily requirements and pride of possession and pride of one's own accomplishments. The soil, fertilized by his own sweat, is something which is precious to him. It contains part of his very self. It chains him. He becomes stationary, earthbound. On the one hand, however, all of the great advances in the development of culture have been stimulated by agriculture, and a great part of the inventions and arts have been evoked by it. But on the other hand, working on the land always has the tendency to lower the agricultural worker more and down to the level of the clod which he serves. In bending his neck under the yoke of effort to attain real property, his soul too becomes bowed. He gets caught by the effort. It begets subjugation, one man enslaved by the other. At the same time, the worker of the land comes to worship the forces of nature on whose influence the success of the fields he serves is visibly dependent. The agricultural peoples were the first to lose the pure consciousness of God and humanity. Their slavery and polytheism were first begotten. In contrast, pastoral life has its advantages. Already the fact that it deals only with living creatures whose care and attention call for and keep alive all the humane feelings of tenderness and consideration is no small advantage. The instability of the property as such, as well as the fact that it doesn't owe its existence but only its care to human beings is a protection against placing too much value on property and its owners. Thus, we find our patriarchs as shepherds and Moses and David with the flocks. Towards it, we find the hatred of Egypt directed to the shepherds and the pastoral people. Right? Egypt was all about building, pyramids, ownership, land. All the results of agricultural work indicated above existed in Egypt, developed to the highest degree. The conception of God and freedom and of man's likeness to God was only retained by a race of shepherds, our forefathers. And so perhaps Yonadav ben Rechav, after seeing the evil and the materialism of Beit Ahav rejected land and land ownership because he saw what a corrupting force it could be, how all-encompassing it could be, the ownership of the land. And perhaps in an effort to steal his, steer his children towards true values, he chose to move them away from land ownership altogether. Now, maybe by using the Bnei Rechavim as role models, Yirmiyahu is showing that he has some sympathy to this perspective. Perhaps, and he certainly has seen the people fall apart in their quest to pursue their material values. Perhaps the people can't withstand the challenges of land ownership, 
and ultimately will become, through human nature, become corrupted by it and stray from God. And perhaps the safer route at this point is to avoid land ownership, which at its worst can create a king like Ahab, corrupted by his own power and desires. Okay, now there's another source. There are other sources in Yirmiyahu that support this perspective. Um, so, for example, if you look at, let's see where I put this, I think it's source 10, when Yirmiyahu describes, describes also an idyllic relationship with God, he says, if you, um, a very famous verse, okay, because we sing it. By Hidavar Hashem, this is verse 10, earlier in Yirmiyahu and Parak Bet, by the more poetic section. By Hidavar Hashem, more. Go and call out in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, So says God, right? I remember the chesed of your youth. What was it like? The love that we had for each other. Okay, what was that like? That was when you followed me in a land that wasn't planted. Now, by the way, interestingly, there's a lot of partial note about this. The medieval commentaries discuss when, which generation is he actually talking about? What do you think? Who is he referring to when he says, you followed me in the wilderness in an unplanted land? There's the, what'd you say? Right, okay, so what, uh, okay, when they left Egypt, exactly, that's one possibility, right? The 40 years in the desert, we weren't rooted, we were simply following God, Okay. Other perspectives say Abraham. Abraham, exactly. That's the debate. Okay, most of the Persian didn't fall into one or the other. Maybe we're talking about the Avot. Maybe this is the times when the the Avot also were wandering. They were, you know, Avram had the Lechacha command. He was trying to take ownership of the land, but not by he wasn't settling the land yet. He was following God. Um, so here's another source in Yirmiyahu where it seems to hold up as a paradigm that. Eretz lo zarua, the unplanted land, and the more dependent relationship on God and not dependent on the land, leads to better spiritual outcome. Okay, but it's not that simple, that this is the, that this is, not even I would say that this is the solution, but that this is Yirmiyahu's only perspective. Although I do think that there are, no pun intended, but seeds of this type of thought throughout the book of Yirmiyahu. But there's other narratives as well, and I think that it's deliberate that we have both. It's not a simple book, and it's not a simple answer. Okay, so I want to take a look now um, at one of the very last stories of Yirmiyahu before the Horban, before the before the the temple is destroyed, before the city is devastated. Um, it's a very very powerful story, um, and that's in source that's in source eleven. Now, just to give you a little bit of the context here, this is really, it's, it's such a powerful point in the book because you're, the land, it's there during the siege, you know, the siege that happened before the, um, Israel was destroyed happens about a year and a half before Tisha B'Av. That was on Asar B'Tevi, the 10th day of Tevi. And from that time on, except for a short break, slowly, slowly, the people were being starved, the land was being destroyed, the Babylonian forces kept getting further, destroying more and more posts. So they kind of had to watch it for a long time. You know, I used to, I think it, it, before we really learned these texts well, I used to think like, you know, it happened kind of quickly, but it didn't happen quickly at all. The people saw it happening for a long time, not just saw it, experienced it. And one of the ways that this played out for Yirmiyahu specifically was that he spent most of his time at that point in jail. 
um, by the Jewish people. They threw him in jail because at that time he was preaching subjugation to the Babylonians. Give in. Let's not fight them. That's not what God wants. That wasn't what the people wanted to hear. The people wanted to rebel. They wanted to fight back and they wanted to earn back their autonomy. Um, so they put him in jail. And many of his, a number of the last narratives that we have from right before the destruction are conversations that Yirmiyahu had in jail, both with God, with the king, with people. It's fascinating because he doesn't shut down. He just keeps on going and going. Okay, so this is one of the last stories that we have before the destruction. We have others that follow it also in the book of Yirmiyahu, but it's a very, very powerful story. Um, so take a look at um, source 11. This is in um, Yirmiyahu Lamed Bet. Okay. Um, and this is a, well, okay, let me, it, it speaks for itself. Okay, so Hadavar Sharia el Yirmiyahu me'et Hashem b'shana ha'asirit l'tzidkiyahu melech Yehuda. Hi ha'shana shmona asrei shana l'nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so this prophecy, this is what happened to Yirmiyahu in the 10th year of Tzidkiyahu, the king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, just to give you, like, the timeline, the Beit HaMikdash and Yushalayim were fully destroyed in the 11th year. So we're talking about, like, the last few months. Va'az chel melech babel tzarim al Yushalayim. Okay, already the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. Ve'yirmiyahu anavi haya kalua b'chatzer ha-matara asher beit melech Yehuda. And Yirmiyahu was confined to the prison compound, which was attached to the palace of the king of Yehuda. Now, by the way, the prison compound was right next to the king's palace because there were a lot of prisoners. Um, if you spoke against the king and his policies, you went to jail. So Yirmiyahu was among them. And obviously, he was a very dangerous force there, too, because he would talk to the people there and he would rile them up. So it just, they keep switching him to a worse jail. And then someone says, no, he has to go back to this jail. So he moves around a lot. Okay, Asher Kalut Tzidkiyahu Melch Yudali Mor Tzidkiyahu locked him up, saying, "Madua Atani Bali Mor Kol Marshem Hinanino Tina Ta'ira Zot Biyana Melch Bavel Velakta." Because Tzidkiyahu, the king of Yehuda, said, "Why do you keep prophesying that God is going to give us into the hands of Babylonia?" Vitzidkiyahu Melch Yudal Lo Yimalate Miad Hakastim. Okay, that was another um, mistake that you're not supposed to tell the king that he himself will be captured, which was something else that Yirmiyahu did. Okay. Um, this is the end of Yirmiyahu's prophecy. Because okay, Yirmiyahu kept prophesying that the lands will be taken, Tzidkiyahu will be taken. So they figured if we put him in jail, he still reaches less of an audience. Okay. So Yirmiyahu is in jail. And also you have to realize that he's very depressed. He, he, to be put in jail by the people that you gave your life up for, I mean, what could be worse? Like, it's, it's just this terrible, and he writes about this depression in many of the other prakim in the Sefer. The Sefer is not arranged chronologically, by the way, so you have to go back. That's one of the nice things about Rabbeinu Lau's book, that he puts it back in chronological order. Um, but he's very depressed, and he's very down, and we'll see that in this parak. Um, and he just sees everything falling apart, and he knows what's happening, and he almost just can't stop it. Vayomer Yirmiyahu, Hayadavar Hashem Elayli Mor. The word of God came to me saying, Hinei Chanamel Ben Shalum Dodcha Ba Elecha Lemor. Okay, he had a visitor, Chanamel, right, the son of his uncle Shulam. So this is Shalum this is his cousin. This is Hashem telling him, "We'll come to you, and he's going to say this to you." Kinei Lecha Et Sadi Asher Ba Anatot Ki Lecha Mishpai Hagula Leknot. Okay, so Yirmiyahu is going to get a visitor from his cousin. And his cousin is going to say to him, 
you need to buy back my land in Anatot. I don't own my land anymore, but it belongs in our family because that's the God-given decree that land should stay to whoever God gave it to me. So therefore, you, Yirmiyahu, it's your job to be goel the land, to redeem the land by buying it back and keeping it in our family. And this happened. Just as God said, came to the jail. He said to me, Buy back my field that's in Anatot, in the lands of Benjamin. That was where Yirmiyahu lived. He was, initially, he was from Anatot. He went to Shalayim in order to prophesy. You could see it if you go to Israel. Like it's, um, it, it, it's right near a town called Anata. So it still even maintains that name. Um, okay, because you have, remember that word Yerusha that we saw earlier? You have the right, you, you have, the, here they translate, the right of succession. It's your job to be Yoresha, to inherit it. You have the duty to redeem it. And then I knew that this was the word of God. Okay. So Yirmiyahu did what God said. I bought the land from Hananel, my cousin, Asher Ba'anatot. I gave all the money they needed to pay for the land. I wrote a deed, because when land was bought, a deed needed to be written. And I sealed it, and there were witnesses. And we weighed out the money. We have all the details here. And I took the... Um, I took the deed, all the different parts of it, the parts that were sealed and the parts that were shown, etc. All the Adim saw it. I gave it to Baruch. I'm going to skip a little bit. Um, okay, to, um, take a, uh, we're going to go to 14 from Yudalid. Why did I do this? Okay, Israel. Take all these books. Et sefer hamiknehazeh, these deeds, these documents. Et achatum viet sefer agaloyazeh, the part that's revealed, the part that's hidden. Vinatatam bikli cheres, and put it in an earthen jar. Lemaan yamdu yamim rabim, so that they will last a long time. And in fact, that's true. By the way, that if documents were kept in earthen jars, they did last much longer. That was a way that things were preserved. So God tells him, buy back the land. And when you buy back the land, take the documents and put them in an earthenware jar, so that they'll be saved. Once again, even though now the land will be destroyed, once again, houses, fields, and vineyards will be bought in this land. Now, something very strange happens after this. The whole story is strange. Let me tell you again, even more specifically, why this story is strange. Another reason why this story is strange is because... um, Okay, first of all, it's striking that on the eve of destruction, the eve of the destruction of Jerusalem, Yirmiyahu and God are preoccupied with buying land. Like, the land is gone. <laughs> There's no land ownership anymore. They took it over. So it's like kind of strange that right before that's happening, they're very busy with all these witnesses and the documents about buying land. Okay, now, even just to make this point stronger, Yirmiyahu's town of Anatot that's being discussed here we know that that was actually already conquered by the Babylonians. So there wasn't even a possibility of even for a month or a week or a few days of Yirmiyahu returning to that land and living in the field of his cousin Hanameh. It's gone. 
It doesn't, it's not under Jewish ownership anymore. So this is really just like a sort of philosophical question about land ownership. He's never going to get to live in that land. Um, it's almost like, you know, just think about like after Gaza was returned, uh, not returned, after Gaza was given as a, I don't even know what to describe it, a gift, or it was given to um, the Palestinians, it's like afterwards people negotiating about a, a piece of land there. Like it's, it's not, it's, it's not, the, it's, it's gone. You're not going to get to live there anymore. Now, it's so bizarre that, because I'm not going to read through the rest of the parable, though I'm going to encourage you to read it on your own because it's a very powerful story, that afterwards, Yirmiyahu turns to Hashem in prayer and he says, this is crazy, God. What's the point? Why are you asking me to buy back this land? This is ridiculous. This makes no sense. It, this is, I, I can't spend my, uh, my physical and emotional energy on this now. You know, Hashem responds to him, and he gives him an emphatic answer. And I wanted to show you the last few psukim of this answer. Okay, so it's the end of Perak Lamid Bet. Um, let's see. We're going to look at the last three psukim. Okay, Mem Bet through Mem Hay. Um, the last, yeah, three psukim. And he says, I'm not sure if this is in the English, actually. Okay, but I'm going to translate it. Ki kol Hashem, kasher heviti el ha'am hazet kol ha'ra'ah hazot, just as I brought all this evil on these people, which is the destruction of the land of Israel, kein anochi mevi'alechem et kol ha'tova asher anochi davi'alechem, so too will I bring good upon this land. V'nikna, again, he reinforces, v'nikna ha'sadeh be'eretz hazot, fields will again be bought in this land. Asher atem omrim shmamahi, that you look at it and you see it's destroyed. You, your meow, look at it and say it's destroyed. Me'ena damu be'iman, it's not be'ana kastim, there's no man and, people and animals there. It's given in the hands of the Babylonians. Sadot bekesef yiknu, once again fields will be bought with money. V'katuv besefer, it'll be written in deeds and documents. V'katum, v'ha'ed edin be'eretz binyaminu, s'vivei Yushalayim, b'arei Yudah, b'arei ha'har, b'arei ha'shvelah, b'arei ha'negev. All over, there will be edim that will talk about purchases of land. Ki ashiv et shrutam nu'um Hashem, because I will again return you to this land, and I will return your fortunes. Why, why was this answer of God so critical? Why was, you know, we really understand where Yermio's questions are coming from, especially when he's been just totally focused on the destruction that's happening. It seems silly to focus on buying this plot of land that is never going to come into fruition for him. But Hashem's answer is so critical, I think, for three reasons. First of all, for the obvious reasons, what God said. God needs to reaffirm the book of Yermio, who was not just, was even more importantly in certain ways for after the destruction, for the people living afterwards who would see this and read this and take consolation from the fact that, yes, the land is destroyed, but God also promised us that we're going to go back. Secondly, I think in light of some of the things that we spoke about about the land ownership, God is also here committing himself, despite all the corruption that happened, to a society of land ownership. A society speaks again and again about buying land, owning land, planting, despite the corruption and eventually the destruction that it led to, God is still committed to it. But he's only committed to it, I I would say, let me just rephrase that, but the only way to successfully own land is through mitzvot and the Torah framework. And that's also what God's committing to here. Because which mitzvot is he asking your meow to keep? He's asking him to keep the mitzvah of Geula, the mitzvah of redeeming land, 
that belonged to his cousin so that we would stay within the family that God had given it to, the family that God wanted to inherit it. Right? And by keeping this mitzvah of redemption, even though Yirmiyahu will not physically benefit from it, but Yirmiyahu shows the people that the only way back to the land is by giving up the ownership that's controlled by man and committing to a land ownership that's controlled by God. Now, interestingly, I think this is exactly the turnaround of the story of Kerem Navo, right? Back to the story of the ultimate corruption of the kingship of Israel was Ahav, right? Ahav pursued land ownership to the point of ridiculousness just out of a quest for his own material desires and control. Here, right before the destruction, Yirmiyahu turns this on his head by buying back the land that he will never get to own just to give the control back to God's system. Okay, now, interestingly, in fact, Rashi on the Torah affirms just this point, because um, this is not on the source sheet, but in Vayikra, um, in Vayikra, following this, in, it's talking about Shemitah and, um, and Yovel following that parak. it talks about also that the land will ultimately be destroyed, and then it says, I'll just read it to you for a minute, it says, um, the land will lie fallow. And it says, Az et kol az et Only by the land lying fallow um, will it reclaim its Shabbat Haaretz, okay, which is talking about Shemitah. Kol yume hashma tishpot et asher lo it says that the land will rest for all the years that it didn't rest. Okay, and Rashi says there, Shiv'im bavel, hayu shiv'im shanot hashmita shayu okay, the 70 years of the exile that were between the destruction of the first temple and when we return, the land had to lie fallow for the 70 years of Shemitah um, when the land sits and we don't work it, which is this, you know, this is a... Uh, What's happening? Was this year? Or it was um, right this year. That's happening right now um, because we didn't keep shemitah. Now, why didn't we keep shemitah? The same principle. Shemitah is letting go our control. Shemitah is all about saying the land only belongs to God. Okay. In order for us to reclaim the land, it only has to be by us giving up that piece of control. Um, and by it's exactly this mitzvah, I guess, that we're doing. Right now, even even in America, we're doing it. If you shop in Costco or Shoprite, and you don't buy those Jaffa oranges, anyway, it's being respectful of God's ownership of the land. Um, so, just to bring us back to where we started from, so we started a little bit with the question of what the prophet is a long journey. So, let me review for a second. What does the prophet of exile have to teach us about living in the land of Israel? And we started with the source where Yirmiyahu talked about, kind of held up as a role model a family, the Bnei Rechavim, who never owned land. And we discussed how that could have been a response to the corruption, seeing the corruption of Ahav and the way that he stole the vineyard of Navot just for material gain. And Yonadav ben Rechav turning to his descendants and saying, yeah, land ownership leads to corruption in the way that Rav Hirsch describes. And Yirmiyahu understood that as a, um, as a truth, in a sense, that land ownership can lead to corruption. But at the same time, he also saw that land ownership with realizing that we're not in control doesn't lead to corruption. Land ownership with realizing that God is in control is in effect the biggest sanctification of God's name. Because then we can sanctify the land in a physical way 
while still recognizing that it all comes from God. And that act that Yirmiyahu had to do on the eve of the destruction by buying back and redeeming land that he would never see was a call to the people to realize that you can own land again, and you will, but you need to do it in a way that you redeem it through God's laws. Okay, now, just to close, um, Rav Hirsch continues that piece that we saw. I think this is the very last verse, but he continues that piece that we saw about agriculture really on the same notes. Okay, Rav Hirsch doesn't give up on land ownership or agriculture either. Okay, and he also points out that, by the way, Adam was told to work the land. Um, it wasn't that we were told not to work the land. But he says, um, but there in the Torah, all the adverse habits the tendency to be a clodhopper and also to worship the possession of property is worked against and prevented. There, the Sabbath days and the Sabbath years, okay, that Shemitah, are external evidence that the soil and the power to work it belong not to man, but to God. The agricultural laws, um, and, um, and he gives some examples, are a constant reminder of him, of God, an admonition to humaneness and brotherly love. By these and other laws, the Torah solves the problem of an agricultural state serving God, of, an agri- um, of a nation united in freedom and fraternal equality. So, Emir Tashem, may we continue to, you know, we're so lucky to live in this generation where we actually do have a state of Israel that exists in a physical way with, I think, major- is it majority of Jews at that po- this point living in, or at least it's equal? somewhat living in Israel, but Amir Tashem may be continued to build up the lands of Israel in a physical way and in a spiritual way. And may we merit uniting these two qualities and God willing, may we celebrate next Yom Hatzma'ut in Eretz Israel. Amen. Amen. Sure. If anyone has any questions. Or if anyone wants to go home because it's late, that's fine too. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. Were there questions that I interrupted? Were there? No. So either way, make sure to come back next week. Um, if there's a, a strong push to bring Mrs. Shivers back, we can discuss that too. Um, I, think she's, I think she's fantastic. Um, I have so much to learn from her. Um, but um, just... Uh, I have a question for you. Are there topics other than halach from text to practice or Megillus Rus that would interest you on a regular basis um, for those of you who can come regularly? So other than halach, I know Elaine has suggested Sidur. I think that's excellent. Anything else? Don't be shy. More Shira. More Shira. <laughs> I hear that. I hear that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs>